0: Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've heard the word of the Lord read, thinking about that passage there from John chapter 2, where Jesus is said by the apostle John to have performed his first sign, first indication publicly of what he was going to do, who he is, who he was, what he was going to do, and so on. He had the first sign, this kind of opening salvo of his ministry publicly. Now, if you could have organized that first sign, if you could have picked it and said, oh, what's the first sign for Jesus? What's the first thing he should do to announce and show himself publicly as Messiah uh, bringing in the new covenant and all that Jesus was going to do? What, what sign would you have picked? Would you have picked making 150 gallons of wine at the end of a wedding feast? Almost certainly Not. Nobody would have picked that. And it mystifies us even to this day why that was the first sign. But I think there's a lot to be learned in that sign and in the, uh, the reality, even as Jesus says, when the bridegroom's here, that's the time for joy. That's the time for the party. right? So even answering in, in Mark chapter 2, say, why don't your disciples fast? The Pharisees fast, John's disciples fast, but Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. He says, because the bridegroom's here. The joy is here. You don't fast when it's time for joy. You feast when it's time for joy. There'll be time for sorrow. And my disciples will will fast then after I go. But while he's with them, he says, no, it's time for joy because Jesus is that joy. Maybe i let a little too much out of the bag before asking the question. If you wouldn't choose turning water into wine at a wedding feast as a first sign, an opening sign of the ministry of Jesus, what would you have picked? What better sign would you have picked? To introduce introduce Jesus to the world as far as the Messiah come to his own people to be rejected by them and to save the world through being rejected even to the point of death, but then to come back and bring newness of life. How would you introduce that as a sign? Wine is, along with bread and oil as well, those three come together, a sign of a developed culture. You don't get wine out of nomads and things like this. It takes time. It takes people being in one place. It takes some expertise to make wine. Wine is uh, an important feature, I think, of all human society. And I think other drinks are as well, wine and beer. We're going to talk about wine because we're going to talk about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And we don't have bread and beer in the Lord's Supper. We have bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Or at least that's what we're supposed to have. Bread and wine. So the focus will be on wine, though a number of things we're talking about go different directions. Uh, In any event, wine and beer both are part of human culture, an excellent part of human culture, but at the same time, an enormous stumbling block to humans and human culture as well. Which is to say, I think, that one of the great blessings God has given humanity is also one of the great curses that humanity has brought on itself, taking that blessing in sin and making it a curse. And we see that through the Bible, absolutely, both sides of that. I think it's, it's easy to come to the Bible if you have an axe to grind. You want to be over here and say, alcohol is good and we should drink it as Christians to go find some verses to say, yeah, the Bible says we should have alcohol and it's good. If you want to come and say, no, alcohol's bad and it's a, it's a brawler, it's terrible, it destroys families, it destroys people, you can find that in Scripture as well. All of this is in the Scripture, which is to say, God is very honest with us. God knows that he gives good gifts, and sinners destroy themselves with those good gifts. But by his grace, when God gives good gifts, the saints, God's people, receive those gifts with joy and grow in them. So that's a, an issue for us. Wine is the gift of God, but also, once perverted, a terrific curse. So that's the framework I think we're going to have as we, as we move through this. But first, now I want to talk about what, what about wine? And then, secondly, that God has given wine, among other things, to help us know how to fear the Lord and how to rejoice in Him, how to fear Him and rejoice in Him together. And then, finally, uh, we'll think about what's in the cup as we come to the, the Eucharistic table, as we come to the Lord's Supper. What's in that cup? And uh, and as a, some considerations there, we'll, we'll close with. So first, what about wine? Well. Wine is an intoxicating beverage made by crushing grapes and fermenting what comes out of that. Wine, it turns out, you might be shocked to find out, isn't grape juice. And I can prove this easily to you. So if I went and sat down at a restaurant and I ordered a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon and I ordered in Illinois a little straw cup of grape juice, and they came and put the stemmed glass in front of Illinois and put the little cut sippy cup in front of me and say, no, you mix them up. And somebody said, no, 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 it's the fruit of the vine. It's all the same thing. I say, well, if it's all the same thing. Then why don't you drink the wine? Because it's obviously not the same thing. Right. And we'll switch the drinks. Say, well, no, you get the grape juice. That's fine. You get the sippy cup and I'll take the stemware. Uh, because they're not the same thing. Wine is fermented, alcoholic, intoxicating, grape juice. That's what it is. And even in antiquity, it's because of course they didn't have refrigeration and, and ways to preserve things the way we do now, pasteurization and so on, uh, grape juice turned to wine as they had started to ferment and get alcohol in it within eight hours. So if, if uh, there, there were ways to kind of preserve it a little longer, but they would expose it quickly and, and as much as they could to try to get it to ferment. Because if it didn't ferment and if the alcohol didn't come, the grape juice spoiled. They couldn't get it to keep. It's the alcohol that allowed it to keep. Uh, So wine is a very, very valuable thing all through the Bible, and we can see it being consumed all through the Bible, we can see it being abused all through the Bible, Uh, all of that's there for us. But there it is, wine is simply uh, grape juice fermented. It is an intoxicating beverage, in Hebrew it's called yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N, yayin, and in Greek it's called oinos. So you get oinophile and things like that from the Greek. Uh, but those are the words for it. The first mention in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 9 specifically. But I'd like to take a step back, kind of in keeping with that Psalm 104, and in the, the, the song we the, just sang, the sing the almighty power of God, that creation itself is addressed entirely when God says, Behold, it is very good. So that's, there's a, I remember talking to a well, theologians saying, well, the principle of first mention, the first time something's mentioned kind of sets the stage for it. That's kind of always the case. You know, I mean, as we, if you address an idea, the first thing that comes in is kind of the one that forms the ideas that you have to work with later, right? So that, that's always the case. But I want to mention this idea that everything God made, He said, good. Which means the sin's not in the stuff. It's in us. Right? We're the problem. We're the sinners. We're the ones that pervert God's good gifts. Into something that is indeed poison and death. And so it is with wine. But the first time we see wine is in Genesis chapter 9. And it doesn't work out particularly well for Noah. So he gets off to the ark and he starts to cultivate the land and plants a vineyard and makes some wine and gets drunk and has some problems. We don't need to detail the problems, but that's the first thing. So it's good that he cultivated the land. It's good that he made the vineyard. It's good that he drank the wine. It's not good that he got drunk. And the things that came from that were entirely destructive, including one of his own children, being cursed, Ham. So we see that right there from Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Proverbs, which, by the way, is full of admonitions about drinking and wine and such. The first one that comes to most people's mind is chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So we have wine there, which is mentioned specifically. The word strong drink, by the way, when you get that in the Bible, it basically means beer. So wine is crushed grapes fermented. Beer is some kind of you know, barley or some kind of grain that's worked and finally fermented also, and that, that becomes strong drink. In biblical language, that's what that word means. Uh, the word shakar and it means beer basically. Uh, so you have wine and beer, and we have that there in Proverbs chapter 20, verse one: Wine's a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever's led astray by them is not wise. Flip over to chapter 23 of Proverbs, 19 through 21 in particular. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And then 29 to 35 is the end of the chapter there. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who carry long over wine, those who, try, who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, the one who lies down on the top of a mass. They struck me, you will say, but it did not hurt. They beat me. But I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Both of these examples just show, these passages show the the wickedness, the destructiveness of drinking. Drinking to excess, drinking to drunkenness. Uh, drinking, and all the kind of drunken lifestyle that comes around it. And again, there are scores of texts in the Bible that talk about just this kind of abuse and how to stay alert, that we should stay away from it. Not necessarily how to stay away from it, but, but that we should. Look, son, don't do that. Right. Look at the drunkards. Look at the guys who are just out the party. Look at their lifestyle. Look how they live. And, and don't do this, son. Um, and it paints that picture for us. And specifically in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a new covenant text here. The one we're very familiar with. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. This is in the kind of putting off and being renewed and putting on section here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That's what we were just reading about there in Proverbs 23. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In a sermon that's going to cover a lot of area, I want to make sure we're clear up front that though God made the world and it's good and that wine itself is good, we'll get there, a blessing from the Lord. That it is a terrible strife to people. And sometimes I think when we mention wine or mention drinking, generally, uh, a, a number of people, this we'll come to a little bit more later, but they look at that and they say, oh, that, that, that's a blight in my life. Either personally, right? something I've personally struggled with, or something that's been a struggle in my family or around me. I've seen the destruction of drinking and the drinking culture and drunkenness, and it's that's just to write it all off. We don't need any of that. It's been so destructive we don't want it at all. And sometimes that's the prudent place to be. But that's not the full-orbed reality of the Bible. The Bible gives us more than that, but it certainly gives us that the abuse, the drunkenness that comes uh, from drinking, if we pursue it that way, is sin, is something God tells us not to do, and is the perversion of the good thing that he's given us in the wine. So I don't think the irony of any of this is lost on you. Uh, struggles in your pastor's life and a uh, number of people's lives. I remember talking to a, a very close friend of mine um, who kind of maybe in more generally business world circles. But he tells me, he says, I don't know a single man I've talked to who doesn't struggle with the amount of alcohol that he takes in time to time. I think it's a normal reality for men to have to figure this thing out. And women as well I say men generally. And Christians, it takes wisdom takes the spirit of God and wisdom in us. Uh, there's not like a, a chart. Say, okay, here's how much you weigh. And here's how tall you are. Okay, here's the godly number of drinks you can have. You know, two and a half drinks and that's it. We don't have the chart. Okay, we don't have that kind of thing. God's given us this enormous gift, which we'll get to. and said, now be wise with it. Because if you don't, it will destroy you. Okay, that's what God's done. That's what he's given. And that's where we have to be as Christians. Is seeking that wisdom. Recognizing the sin abjuring hating the sin and ourselves and one another and helping each other away from the sin into the glory of the thing that God's given into the blessing of the thing that God has given so drunkenness is certainly a temptation to be avoided certainly a temptation to be avoided together and individually uh, as we in righteous ways pursue the joys that God's given in His creation as well so our sin is one thing our sin is one thing but the divine purpose of wine is different. God's given wine, He tells us why. Now we pervert it, we sin with it and we destroy ourselves with it and destroy others as well. in okay, our sin. But that's one thing. The purpose of God and wine is something different. And that of course we can see in Psalm 104. You might put back there uh, in your Bible, Psalm 104. And in particular those couple of verses, verses 14 and 15. So remember, in the, in the course of this psalm, as, as the psalmist is looking at all this creation and all the natural world, and marveling at all the things in it and stolen God for the glory of His manifested through creation, he comes to this in verse four: "You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate." Okay, so he's looking at the ground, saying, "Okay, well, you this this place grows. You got some magic dust down here, and somehow God makes stuff grow out of it." And as it grows out of it, men are able to cultivate that. Animals can eat it and grow, and men can cultivate it and do things with it. And so they, then the psalmist comes up in verse 15 with this. Well, before that, the plants to, to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth, Okay, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Sometimes we might think, that our physical existence and the things we take into our bodies, whether food or drink and so on, are just, by God, just, just nutrition, right? We need calories to burn, we're going to burn the calories, and it's like this, you know, we got a, some kind of function, some mathematical function as far as what we eat and what we take in. And I don't doubt that there's some truth to that at some level. But God's more interesting than that. God's more interesting than just the analysis of breaking down calories and all this. He said he's given us wine, which is to say men cultivated the earth that he's made to make wine, why? To gladden the heart. Okay, that's the purpose of wine given by God through the cultivation of men. To gladden the heart. Anybody like having a glad heart? What's, what's the opposite? An unglad heart? Which would you rather have? Okay, so this is a good thing, right? Having a glad heart's a good thing. And he says, God's given us wine for that. Now let me ask you a question. If you go from having a non-glad heart and you have a glass of wine or two, and you have a glad heart, have you had a change in your mental situation? Yeah. God's given wine to have us have a cheerful heart. That's a gift of God in wine. So if we say, well, you we shouldn't drink to change our attitude, like, well, that's what it says. Right? That, that God's given us this to change our attitude. It's a tool for us. Just like oil, then, is going on the face to what? Make the man look good. God's into pleasure, that's the first one, to make the heart glad, it's pleasing, right? That's a pleasing feeling and, and the reality you're in with, with the wine. To make his face shine, God's into pleasure, beauty, and then finally strength of vitality. He's given us bread to strengthen the heart of man. Now these are all, again, all natural gifts. This is all in the, in the, in the, in the realm of nature and creation that God's made, not even in the realm of redemption. God has given wine to make the heart glad. It's a gift to humanity for their gladness. Just like oil is a gift to them for their beauty and, and bread for their strength. God is into pleasure, beauty, and vibrancy, not just calories to be burned. Right? The, the, he's given us the earth that tastes good. That gives us joy to eat and drink. And looks beautiful. I was just listening to a story of being down on the Middle Fork of the Willamette River, and how beautiful it was. God didn't need to make this place beautiful, but He did because He is. He made it beautiful because He's beautiful. He made it pleasurable. You know why? Same reason. Because He's pleasurable. He made it to give us strength. You know why? Because He is strength. These are gifts of God through His creation to us. He gives his spirit through these things, and the power of God comes through them. And, of course, that's what's for. But then sinners take that, all those things, and abuse them, right? And turn them into sinful, perverted realities, and God judges that. Flip over to Amos chapter 9. And even if you look at kind of sections or the headings in your text there, you see most of the chapter is uh, about the, the, the judgment and destruction of Israel. But the very end of it is a prophecy of the great redemption of Israel, okay, which is not uncommon as far as how prophets will speak. But let's read this, starting at verse eleven. And I want you to think not just not just of wine in the sense of this natural gift of God by which He gives us pleasure because He Himself is pleasure. But also the redemptive reality is an image of what wine is. It's not just a natural gift, it's something taken up into redemption to show us the greater pleasure, even than the earthly creational. Pleasure. Although they go together. Verse 11, just read to the end of the chapter here. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this. Sounds new covenant Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the, and the uh, treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh your God. And that's the end of the Prophets. Work there. And this is a great hopeful book of the day of redemption that's going to come. Uh, God finally planting and rooting his people not to be uprooted again. And interestingly, we have the, the mountains and, and the crags of the mountains dripping with what? Sweet wine. We just read in Psalm 104, uh, that there's water that God makes to run through and run down mountains and ravines and the animals drink it and, and everyone's, everyone's happy and uh, hydrated, uh, from Uh, from psalm 104 there but here it's not dripping with water it's sweet wine coming down the mountains
1: And, and and then the image of that redemption
0: fully is god's going to plant them in the land and they're going to eat the fruit of the land they're going to they're going to live in the homes rebuild the cities and rebuild the vineyards rebuild the fruit uh orchards and they're going to enjoy all of that christian that's an image of your redemption God uses that image of the restored land, being in the land, building the land, and enjoying the fruit of the land, in particular, the wine of the land, as the blessing of the new covenant, the very blessing that Jesus himself has come to give the world. So drunkenness, just to summarize, is a temptation to be avoided, but as we look at the scripture, the, 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 the alcohol is something that God has given, wine is something God has given to be enjoyed, That, in moderation, Christians are called to enjoy that. They're free to enjoy it. I'll put it that way. And if you're free to enjoy it, you're also free not to enjoy it. That's kind of how the freedom goes. right? Uh, just because you're free to do something, this is important, listen, especially you younger folks, because it seems like we get this confused. Uh, we think, oh, if I'm free to do it, that means I have to do it. Not at all. If you're free to do something, you're also free not to do it. That's the nature of the freedom there. And so I think if we, if we detail or work these things out in our own lives and our families, uh, remember that. That though God's given this gift, we're free not to use it sometimes. We're free not to use it at all. Yet we're also free to use it. And it takes wisdom and prudence in each of our lives, each of our families, to figure out what the right course is, how to serve the Lord um, in imbibing. So it is to be used. Moderately and for gladness of heart. Christian? For, for joy and gladness of heart. Something God's given to us and even as a sign of our redemption. Now, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. As I think maybe one of the most instructive passages when it comes to worship and fellowship in, in, in among God's people and the use of wine and beer and food. Deuteronomy chapter 14 this is, I think, one of those passages that if you were raised you know, in the evangelical church, or even more so in the kind of fundamentalistic evangelical church, like the BPs, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the fun, part of the fundamentalism of the early 20th century and the origins of the Bible Presbyterian Church are wrapped around... Uh, Abstinence from alcohol. That's kind of one of the the things for the fundamentalists. This stuff's bad. We don't want it. And that's kind of been part of the Bible Presbyterian culture. uh, And not just BPs, but general fundamentalist, kind of Baptist, American um, churches. And people who are raised in that and are thinking that way, when they come to a passage like this, uh, it tends to blow their mind. Oh, this is is in the Bible. It surely is. So let's read it. Um, Chapter 14 and verses, starting at verse 22. About the tithe, there are are three as far as I understand in Scripture. There are three different Old Testament tithes. Here's one of them, one of the ways the the tithe is used. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before Yahweh your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. Where is that place that he will choose to make his name dwell there? Here in, in Deuteronomy. And they're on their way into the land. He hasn't made his name dwell there, but where is it? The tent, it finally lands in... Israel. Sorry, there. In Jerusalem. That's right, everyone wants. <laughs> so, the, the temple ends up being built, the tabernacle goes and the temple being built there in Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about, in case it was not clear. Evidently, it was not. Okay, sorry, verse 23 here. And before Yahweh, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. Okay, there's the first thing, this tithe and the eating of it, the reception of it together is so that Israel may learn to fear Yahweh their God always. Okay, that's the first step. And, it goes on, if the way is too long for you, that is if Jerusalem is too far away, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when Yahweh your God blesses you because the place is too far for you, which is uh, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name there then you shall turn it into money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place that Yahweh your God chooses in other words the 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 fruit of your uh, of your field of your of your herd whatever you're going to sell it take the money and go to Jerusalem what do you do with that money there and spend the money verse 26 on whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink whatever your appetite And you shall eat it there before Yahweh your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. I'll read the rest of the chapter. And at the end of the three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. This is a separate part of the tithe. And the Levite, because he has no portion of inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, all who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So there's different parts of this tithe. As you, as you gather that tithe, the Lord blesses you with an income, with an increase, and you take the tithe from that. There are a number of things to do with it, and, and the, one of them is in your own towns. You're going you're to use this to bless the, uh, the sojourner and, 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 the, and the, um, the impoverished, and so on. That's one way. But every other, every third year or something, you're going to take it up to Jerusalem, and you're going to take it up to Jerusalem and do what with it? You're going to buy whatever you want. You're going to eat your steaks. You're going to marinate your chicken. You're going to, you're going to get your stuff. Or you're going to get your food together. We all get that, right? No problems there. Baptists get that stuff too. right? It's, oh yeah, good food. No, I can understand that. But he says also, go get some wine. Go get some beer. Whatever your heart desires. Whatever your craving is. I thought cravings are bad. They're not all bad. God's made us craving beings. Right? He's made us to desire. He's made us to need. That's why Adam was made hungry in the midst of a garden that he could eat because god would provide for him and it wasn't like just again uh, like the bowl of snot on the on the ship i'm thinking of a uh, matrix where they're eating that stuff and it's got all the amino acids and all the proteins that we need it's like yeah but it tastes terrible but it has everything we need god didn't do it that way he made it beautiful he made it uh, pleasing to taste Right? All of that is how God made this world. And the same thing goes. He's made us to desire it, to, to appreciate it, to take it in and, and be pleased by it. The problem is, is when we're too pleased by it, and we just seek the gift and not the giver. Right? We get wrapped up in the idolatry of the gift and not the giver. But God says, the way you're going to learn to rejoice before me, along with the Levites and the poor people and everything else, and the way you're going to learn to fear me, is by this tithe that you eat, And drink with your family before me in worship. Now, does it seem counterintuitive to you that God would say, go get some beer and some wine. Go get some steak. Eat it up. Drink it up. Rejoice before the Lord and learn to fear me. Does it seem counterintuitive to you that drinking wine or beer would help you fear the Lord? If it seems counterintuitive to you, then I don't think you understand what this passage is saying. I don't think you understand what's going on here. God's given us all these good gifts that we should learn to fear him. And even, I think, I can say, in a situation where you're you're past the point of uh, of a merry heart into the point of drunkenness, um, you can learn to fear God right there. I can tell you, the, 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 that experience, and we'll read some passages later in the Education Hour out there, uh, where God uses that as an image, right, that drunkenness and, uh, and the stumbling and the staggering and the red eyes and the vomiting, he says, that's like my wrath upon the world. That kind of experience, and anyone who's been there knows that experience, it's like, yep, that's the bad one. You don't want that experience. That's not the party before God. That's you, you learn to fear God by that kind of wrath, but rather the good and wholesome way of saying get together. Enjoy the fellowship of the family. Get together, eat and drink and be merry. Let your hearts be glad. Let your faces shine. Let your hearts be strengthened. And you learn to fear Yahweh and rejoice in Him that way. Now, let me give you a very practical application. July 24 through 27, in the year of our Lord, 2023, this year, we have a family camp, a campout for the church. And that's a lot like what you see here in Deuteronomy chapter 14. We're not going to the temple. right? Jesus says, you know, the day's coming when Mount Gerizim's not the issue, and the mountain in Jerusalem's not the issue, but all through the world. So we're not worried about going to Jerusalem to do this. But as a church, as we get together, this is part of your tithe. God says, use part of your tithe, fund this thing, and go together and have a party and rejoice before me. Not for drunkenness and other sin, but to rejoice before the Lord and fear Him. So, brothers and sisters, our family camp, our church campout, is like this. Take, take your tithe money. Pay for your campsite. Buy what you want to buy. Bring good food. The best the hot dogs you can bring. Whatever you want. All the stuff you like. And rejoice before the Lord. Okay? There's an application for you right now to, to, to practice this. And I do think faithful festivaling or faithful partying Takes practice and work through the years to dial it in, and that's something the case. I think we can see from our own our own church camp through the years of Wilkerson, we've kind of dialed in certain things. And anyway, just I want to encourage you in that and and say this is what God's given. Use your tithe. Part of that tithe is to fund you going to camp and to be together with the brothers to rejoice before the Lord and fear Him. So we talk about drunkenness and the sin of imbibing but also joy and the glories of imbibing, and joy of glory and glories of imbibing before the Lord together as his people. Uh, but sometimes as we come together, not often enough I say, we come together to rejoice before the Lord at a little table here as well. Or behind me, it turns out, it's a little table here. And that has two elements to it, bread and the fruit of the vine. Those are what's said to be on the table of the Lord's table, the Eucharistic table. And I want to consider that just for a moment here. So Jesus came. His first sign again was uh, not just you know making a glass of wine or a bottle of wine or even ten bottles of wine, but 100 or 150 gallons of wine. Again, at the end of the party, uh, the end of the long party. And in doing that, and again with the, the new wine and the new wine skins, he's saying this, this is something new. I'm, I'm coming to bring something new. I'm coming to bring something glorious. And the image of it is wine, the joy of wine. The rejoicing that comes. Jesus is like, that's, that's me. That's what I'm coming to offer you. That's what Jesus brings to the world. And then he gives us uh, a table with bread, we could say, to strengthen our heart. And then with a cup with the fruit of the vine in it to make our hearts glad with his joy as well. Now, if you look at, just you can write it down, Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. You can go look at that. The, the Bible knows how to talk about grape juice. You can see it right there in Numbers 6, verse 3. The juice of the grape is what's talked about. Uh, but that's, it's uncommon in the Bible that juice would say juice. As I mentioned before, it, it tends to ferment. They don't have, the again, the 19th century modern, uh, you know, after Louis Pasteur and all that, uh, being able to take liquids and sustain them through time. Before that, they didn't have that. It was, again, the alcohol that helped sustain it. And so grape juice was never in the cup of Christians Okay, for 1800 years of Christian history, it was not grape juice in the Eucharistic cup. It was wine. That was common, that was normal, that's what it was. It wasn't changed until the 19th century. We have this thing going on in the, uh, in the 1800s, the 19th century, where there is a couple things that happen. Once, once distillation, in particular, kind of comes into its own, so you can take, for instance, the, the mash of, of your wine, and you can let it ferment into wine, or you can put it into a different process of distilling and turn it into brandy, right? And you can do the same thing with beer. You can take the, the mash, it becomes beer, but you, you can let it ferment into beer, or you can take it and distill it into whiskey. But that's a, kind of a new technology here in the 19th century that has enormous, enormous problems developed out of that, particularly in the cities of Europe, right? Gin and whiskey are blights upon, and they really are. They, they destroy a lot um, and, uh, and so alcohol does become a, kind of a broader issue, a more impactful issue, especially with the higher alcohol percentages of the distilled uh, spirits and so on in the 19th century. And, of course, as a reaction against that, and for plenty of good reasons, uh, the temperance movement develops in the early 19th century, and it really is a full swing by the 1850s when 33 states, 33 states had outlawed uh, the sale and transportation of liquor already by 1850 and into the 1860s. And uh, I can tell you the Welch's story, because that's exactly what comes up, this, this whole process of trying to get rid of the alcohol. We don't want alcohol. It's the point where alcohol is simply is bad. Right? It's evil. It's poison. The Scripture says so. I can show you right here. It says it's poison. And that's the view of it. And so if it's poison and it's evil, obviously Jesus didn't drink it because he was sinless. How could Jesus drink something that's sinful? So there's this kind of revision of even how we read the Bible, and that works into how we worship the Lord. Where one day, there's wine in that goblet, there's wine in that cup, and a little while later, it's not wine anymore. It's great juice. Well, I think, Christians, we need to repent of that. It's that simple. God didn't tell us to get together and have hamburgers and Diet Coke for the Eucharist. He didn't say just eat something and drink something and say that's my body and that's my blood and good. He said no. Bread and the fruit of the vine. Now, you might catch that and say, oh, well, the fruit of the vine. Well, any fruit that comes on a vine will do that. Blackberry juice or whatever, you know, just, if it grows on a vine and it has some fruit, that's it. But that's ignorant beyond description as far as the actual language. Uh, It's it's just the literalism of those words, taking them literally and then applying them, as opposed to trying to figure out what does that phrase, the the fruit of the vine, mean? And when you look at it and study it, you'll find that unequivocally, that fruit of the vine means wine. That's what it means in Jewish liturgical language. That's how they refer to it. And give God thanks for the wine they're about to drink is for the fruit of the vine. So when Jesus, at the Last Supper, breaks the bread and distributes it, and takes the cup and says, you all distributing or breaking apart... Break it up among yourselves and drink it. It's bread and wine that he is introducing there. And even as far as the bread, side note on bread, say, well, wouldn't it would have been, um, you know, bread without um, leaven, uh, unleavened bread because it's Passover. Probably would have been, but the text in the Bible never says that. It only gives us the word bread. And so the the, the church through the years, there's division kind of on the bread thing, but it has that bread and wine. Very simple, profound. A prof- and there is a profound difference between bread and crackers. That we get some And there's a profound difference between wine and grape juice. And everybody knows it. And Christ gave us bread and wine. And for centuries then, the church had no problem with that. But when there became this societal move, there's a thing going on. There's, there's, there are winds of doctrine blowing in society. Do you, do you sense any winds of doctrine blowing in our society now? Can you lick your finger and put it up there and kind of figure out which way they're blowing? It doesn't take much. You probably don't even have to lick your finger. But 150 years ago, 160 years ago, 170 years ago, the winds that were blowing were temperance winds, and they were being blown by Christian mouths. The the temperance and the prohibition and all that is a Christian work in America, and may God forgive us for it. Uh, As far as all that goes, not only the prohibition and society and all the problems that made, but in the very church itself, where Christians thought they're wiser than God. Well, you know, people get drunk on wine, and so we shouldn't have that. But God said that. And God knew people would get drunk. In fact, it's in the Bible. Here's another example for you about why it's wine in the Eucharistic cup and not grape juice. Paul says in First Corinthians 11, I think, verse 22, 21, he says, You know, you got your own homes to eat and drink, and what happens here? Like, someone comes and have nothing, and other people are already what? Drunk. So we have in the church, in the New Testament, at Corinth, the situation where you have drunk Christians and other Christians who have nothing supposedly coming together around the Lord's table as bone between his bone and flesh between his flesh because we're all on the head Jesus Christ. You don't get drunk on grape juice. You get drunk on wine. The Corinthian church had a problem with that. Now that's kind of an amazing problem, don't you think? You know, if we had that kind of problem here and you walk in and there's a party over here going on and half of them are drunk and kind of sloshed and the other people are coming in and they're poor. You say, wow, well, that's a crazy division to have in a church and a problem. That's the problem of the, of, the, of the immaculate first century church. It wasn't really so immaculate at all. And so here's what I say, I think, as your pastor, and I think it's faithful to the scriptures. We need to repent before God of doing it wrongly all these years of being wiser than God. We might not think that. Like, we just kind of go along with what we've done. Sure, it's always been grape juice. What's the big deal? But it shouldn't have been grape juice in the first place. It never should have been grape juice. It always should have been wine. And it always has been wine until men decided they were wiser than God. Or holier than God. Or God doesn't really understand the sin thing, but I sure do. So I'll help them out a little bit. Or whatever the mentality is. But it's it's all foolishness. Our job isn't to outthink God. Fat chance doing that. Our job is to obey God. In our personal lives, in our families, in the church, and in the liturgy of the church. And so our plan, Christians, as we, as we come to the Lord's table the next time, will be to repent of this and get the grape juice out of here, and get the wine in the cup, and so we'll have bread and wine, as the scripture tells us to do. That's the plan coming up next, a couple of Lord's days from now, the first one of next month. Now, I understand And Quentin understands, and I think you probably all understand, that there's maybe some potential strife there, some potential problems. Uh, This afternoon we're going to talk about some of those in education hour. I have kind of some list of questions we can work through and talk through a little bit as far as we come, particularly to the Eucharist to the Lord's Supper uh, with wine. But, uh, you know, just make a statement now about it, that some churches... In, in a transition, or I, maybe not, maybe they don't think it's a transition, but they have a split tray. They'll have, you know, one half is grape juice and one half is wine, or the outer circle is, you know, whatever. They have both of them there, and I think in some situations that's maybe a necessary step to kind of move the congregation where it's supposed to go. We don't think that that step necessary here, and we think that uh, it would be a further uh, sin against God to continue disobeying by continue having grape juice when we should have wine. Now, maybe there's a reason to do that by step. I don't think we have that reason here. But maybe there is that reason. If so, please come talk. Right, talk to us and let us know what's going on if you're concerned, uh, or anything like that. So, to wrap this up, Jesus' first sign, when when the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ wanted to make his son publicly known in the ministry he was going to have, he did so by using his mother, interestingly, to get him to do the work of turning 100 or 150 gallons of water into wine. And it wasn't just like, yeah, that's some good wine. Right? The master of the, of the party is like, this is the best wine. You saved the best wine. That's, that's unheard of. Who would do that? You know who would do it? The Son of God. He's coming to bring the good stuff. He's come to bring the joy. He's come to bring the salvation. It's new wineskin time. Not the old skin." We don't want it to rip. We want to preserve and keep this glorious wine. This joy that God's given. And we need to help each other do it faithfully. In the kind of physical sense of the wine. But it's all in Christ. He's the wine. He's the good stuff. He's the joy. He's the salvation. And that's the point. That's the point of that first sign. He's the best wine. Christian, do you know that? Jesus is the best wine. There's all kinds of wines and they're good, but he's the best one. Huh. All the pleasures, all the things you love, whether they give you, you know, your pleasure or your beauty or your strength, all of that is in Christ Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the source of all of that blessing. He is the best wine. Now we know as it comes down to what's in our glasses, it can be used sinfully to the destruction of the drunk and of his world. Okay, this is powerful stuff. And it can destroy the drunk. And it can destroy a family, it can destroy the world, it can destroy the local churches. So we need to make sure that we are using wine faithfully, and it's friends, wine. But also we know that wine is given for joy. That we may learn to fear Yahweh together. Learn to rejoice in Him together as a tool. So wine is also what should be in the Eucharistic cup. Indicating again this fullness of joy. That God's giving us something incredibly valuable and happy and and elating in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, now be strong and be full of joy and eat my flesh and drink my blood and go forth into this world full of that joy into a world without that joy. It's seeking it from booze, seeking it from sex, seeking it from whatever else, trying to make themselves happy. So you have Jesus Christ, the source and, and conduit of all the mercies and joys and pleasures of Almighty God, and He's full of them. He's full of those pleasures. He's full of those joys. And they are for us in Christ Jesus, His broken body and His shed blood for us. Amen.